Well, a couple years ago, I went hiking with some guys from church. It was a pretty intense three-day backpacking trek starting near the coast in Big Sur and ending up about 10 miles inland at a place called San Carpojo Camp, if I'm pronouncing that right. And during the first leg of the hike, which takes you from near sea level way up, up the hill, it's a pretty well-marked trail. Just follow the trail. You can't really get lost. Just go to the trail. There's signs every so often keeping you on track, telling you where you need to go. But I remember once we got above the tree line, the trail became less distinct. And at times there was like competing cattle trails. You were very unsure, is this the right trail or am I just on a cattle trail? Also, there were no more signs, at least none that I could see. It seemed like at that point it would have been incredibly easy to get lost. I remember even at one point near the final leg of the hike, we, the trail ended and we had to cross this random field to pick up like another trail somewhere and there's no way I would have found that if I were by myself. If you didn't have a guide or someone who had been there before, there's no way you would have made it through that hike. But just, just imagine this. Imagine you're on a hike and you're on a, a perfectly groomed trail. It's clearly marked all the way through. There's signs every hundred feet pointing you which way you need to go. Also, you've got a personal guide with you leading the way, you know, there's a trail back in front, and you've got a map you're tracking the whole time. It seems like if this were the case, it would be impossible to get lost. I mean, how could you, what with the trail, the guide, the map, the signs, all pointing the way? And if you think about this, this is, in a way, a helpful analogy for understanding what God was doing with the cross of Christ. Let me explain. The cross of Christ was a huge shock and a scandal as we learned last time. To think that when the divine Messiah finally came, instead of conquering, he would die. And not just die, but die in a humiliating, painful, excruciating way. The death of a criminal on a cross. That just can't be. For the first century Jew, to think that this beaten, bloodied, powerless Jesus is their divine Messiah, it's, it's laughable. That's why they mocked him. The death of Jesus on the cross, it even scandalized his own followers. The disciples, they were following Jesus along, but they couldn't fathom how this could be God's will. They were following Jesus on his trail. But then the trail started to get real dark and narrow and scary. And then when they saw the cross in the middle of the trail, they thought, this, this can't be right. This can't be the right trail. We've gone off course. Or maybe Jesus, he's lost. But there's no way this can be God's path for the Messiah, through a cross. But as we know, it was. I mean, this was the plan. This was the path. Jesus wasn't off course. It was God's purpose for the Messiah to first go through the valley of death. And Jesus knowingly, willingly, voluntarily went to the cross because it was God's plan. But God himself knew that the notion of a crucified Messiah would be a stumbling block to many. So in his wisdom, he left behind many signs along the way, confirming that this was indeed still the right course. So God gave, for example, the Old Testament prophets. And they're like trail guides. And they point the way, they chart the course the Messiah is supposed to take. And then in the cross itself, God ordained the circumstances of Christ's death that when you look at all the details of what went on, you don't find any meaningless facts. Rather, you find signposts confirming the Messiah, he's actually on track. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. The ultimate sign would be the resurrection itself. But even while Jesus was hanging there on the cross, everything going on around him, it's actually all confirmation as you look at it that Christ is right where he is supposed to be on the cross. Even though the trail of the Messiah had become narrow and dark and scary, it was still the right trail. At the time, the disciples were caught spiritually sleeping, so they, their eyes were shut. They didn't see all of these signs around them. But may we not fall into that same error. The trail is still there. The guides still chart the path. The signs still point the way, all confirming that the cross was God's will for Jesus. And now as we come to the passage of the cross, we come to that same point in the trail where it gets narrow and dark, and there's a cross in it. And it makes us ask, you know, is this right? 
It's easy to believe in Jesus when he's teaching and healing people. Everyone loves that Jesus. But now he's mocked and rejected and crucified and slain. Can, can this be right? Well, yes, it is right. And today we want to behold all the indicators that God left behind that Christ's messianic mission was still on track even as he breathed his last on the cross. The word of the cross, it's still foolishness to the world. They still think it's dumb, doesn't make sense, a crucified divine Messiah. It still scandalizes them to think about the message of the cross. But if you just follow the trail guides and you see the signs, you will behold the wisdom of God's plan of salvation. That's what we want to behold this morning. So take your Bibles. And open them to Mark 15, verses 22 through 32. Mark 15. After two years in Mark's gospel, that's how long it's been, we're finally to the passage of the cross. Last week we did more of a a theological introduction to the cross, exploring his role as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I've already introduced you to the fact that in this account, there is so much more going on than meets the eye. Mark and the gospel writers, they don't just include random details, but everything here screams with some theological significance. And we want to see more of that this morning. Specifically, when you look at all the little little details that Mark include, includes, you know, at first glance it seems just random facts, just painting the picture of Jesus on the cross. But upon closer inspection, it's like every verse, every five feet you walk, there's another sign. And the sign is telling you Jesus, he is the Christ. And far from him failing his mission by being nailed to the cross, that, that is his mission. That, that's what he came to do. That's what God always intended the Messiah to do first, to die for the sins of the people in a shameful way. I know you guys, you all know this. It's not a shock to you. You've heard that before. But just keep in mind, back then, that was a mind blower to think that is the mission of the Messiah. Here's what I want to do. We're going to begin by making our way through this passage verse by verse. Through the first three hours of Christ on the cross, verses 22 through 32. But we'll be making two passes through these verses. It's kind of like seeing a movie twice. The first time you watch, you just take in the spectacle of it all. But you watch it again, you start to pay attention to all those little details and the underlying significance. And that's what we're going to do here. So our first pass, just going to go through these verses at a a surface level. We'll treat them very matter-of-factly, but as we learned last time, there's so much more going on under the surface. And so we'll make a second pass through these verses and try to identify all all the significance behind these seemingly random details in this story. And we'll discover, for those with eyes to see, that the wisdom and the glory of God's age-old plan of redemption It's hard to believe for some people or hard to accept that everything that happened to Jesus in his death was planned by God. Everything that happened to him was planned by God and planned by God for a purpose. Do you believe that? Well, we're going to let you see for yourselves this morning. Let's begin at the top, verse 22. Just make our way first through. Very simply, see what this text is all about. Starting in verse 22. It says, Then they brought him, Jesus, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. We mostly covered verse 22 last week. I'll just remind you that the Romans, they they led Jesus outside the city gates, outside of the holy city, to the place of the skull. So named probably because the little piece of land resembled a skull. The Romans always wanted an audience for their crucifixions, so most likely this was along a busy highway leading in and out of the city. Before they nailed him to the cross, though, verse 23 says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, this didn't have to do with Jesus being thirsty. Rather, according to ancient rabbinic writings, this was a custom of rich women in Jerusalem to show mercy to the condemned in accordance with Proverbs 31, verse 6, which says, give strong wine to him who's perishing. So they take some wine, they would mix it with myrrh, it would give it a bitter taste. 
Uh, but it would also serve as a narcotic to deaden the feeling of pain. And they would give it to people who are being crucified. Verse 23, though, makes clear this was being offered to Jesus by the Roman soldiers. So maybe they are extending him a brief mercy. But more likely, they're, they're taking the cup from the women because they just want to make their job easier of killing these men. But Jesus, however, he refuses this remedy. The imperfect tense, it means they, they try to give it to him over and over. They insisted that he take it, but he just refused. It's like the wounded general who still needs to command his troops. Jesus needed his wits about him for his time on the cross. Spiritual battle still had to be fought. There's going to be temptation on the cross. He needed his mind clear for what he was about to face. Furthermore, believe it or not, Jesus was going to have several ministry opportunities while he was dying on the cross. And he needed his mind to be able to to uh, rise to that occasion, to minister. His work wasn't finished, so without any painkillers, even ancient ones, he was nailed to the tree. Verse 24 says, And they crucified him. And dividing up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. I made the claim last week that the gospel writers, they really aren't focusing on the physical sufferings of Jesus. And this verse is proof positive. I mean, this event, this this is the crucifixion. This is what the whole gospel of Mark has been leading up to. And Mark describes it, I mean, one of the most painful ways to die. And Mark describes it in all of three words in the Greek, four in English. And they crucified him. It doesn't say anything else. Never mentions the nails, the, the cross itself, hoisting him up. doesn't say anything. We'll delve more into the nature of death by crucifixion next week, but for now, suffice it to say that Mark and the other gospel writers, they don't think those details matter nearly as much as what else was going on around the cross. And accordingly, we next see these soldiers, and they're, they're dividing up the clothes of Jesus. From what we know, Criminals were executed by a Roman squad of four soldiers and one centurion. Their job was to complete the execution and guard the criminal from being rescued. As a bonus, though, their custom was to divvy up the personal belongings of the person they crucified. In this regard, John's gospel tells us a little bit more. First, he says they divided up his outer garments into four parts. And that confirms there's most likely four soldiers because it says one to each soldier, so four soldiers. The outer garments here most likely refer to just everything he was wearing except his inner garments. So his belt, his sandals, his head covering, his outer robe. Each soldier would have gotten one article of clothing. But then they also stripped Jesus of his inner garment, like long underwear, a tunic. And John says it was seamless, woven in one piece. In other words, it was really nice. It's a really nice undergarment that he wore. And it'd be such a shame to just tear it up into four pieces. I mean, after all, what good is a fourth of a pair of underwear? So the soldiers, well, it's true, right? So the soldiers cast lots for it, and they decide who gets to take it home. The ancient practice of casting lots could take many forms. Think of today like rolling dice or drawing straws. Either way, whoever the lot fell to, he would have taken home the whole tunic in one piece. Well, let's keep going. Verse 25 says, It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. We already covered the timing of the cross. The third hour is a reference to 9 a.m. for the Jews, so they lifted him up at nine in the morning. Most likely they they laid Jesus down on his back on the cross. They nailed him to it. Then they hoisted the whole thing up and placed the bottom of the cross into a a deep post hole dug in the ground. Seeing that the crucifixions were meant to be a public spectacle by the Romans, they were sure to include the charges of the condemned. And so hanging above Jesus on his cross was a little wooden placard that read, King of the Jews. The full text of that placard, according to, you combine all the four Gospels, the full text was this. It said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And John tells us that 
Pilate had it written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. So everybody that passed by. And John tells us many people just were passing by this highway. They could all see it and read in their language what Jesus was being killed for. We're moving on. Verse 27 mentions a familiar detail. It says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Here are the two other infamous thieves on the cross. We're never told their names, but their place is forever cemented in history as those who would be on his right hand and his left as he was enthroned on his cross. This verse labels these two men as robbers in the NASB. We, we, we call them thieves, the thieves on the cross. It actually doesn't quite fit the word that's used of them, though. Lestes in the Greek, it does mean robber, but someone who, who steals by force as opposed to a thief who steals by stealth. A better term really would be bandit. These men were outlaws. They're not just petty thieves. In fact, the same word used of them was used to describe Barabbas, who was guilty of insurrection. So most likely they were insurrectionists, even murderers, along with Barabbas. A couple weeks ago, we, we established that middle cross that had Barabbas' name on it. He was supposed to die there that morning with these other two men. But Jesus, as you know, traded places with him. The other two crosses most likely were meant for his two partners in crime. Don't know for sure, but most likely these guys were rolling with Barabbas. Now the significance of Christ's position in between two lawless men, well, we'll come back to that. Like I said, first we're just taking a surface pass through these verses. So next, verse 29. It says, those passing by were hurling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. For some people, the death of Jesus was an event. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, their cronies, they were not going to miss Jesus dying. They stayed up all night condemning Jesus. They presented Jesus before Pilate. At the crack of dawn, they saw through to his death sentence They're not going to miss this. So they were all there gathered. But as Mark and John indicates, many Jews were just, they were just passing by. It was a busy highway. Day before Sabbath, you got to finish all your travels up. The people were just passing by. And they would take sight at the cross. It's kind of like a car accident on the freeway. On the other side of the freeway, when you finally pass by, you know something terrible has happened, but you can't help but taking a look. And all these people, they're passing by. They're going to behold the spectacle of these three men on a cross. They're going to read the sign above Jesus and read his charges. And then they're going to scoff. Because they all knew who he was. Everybody knew Jesus of Nazareth at that point. The stories had circulated. Also, word of his trial by the Jews had probably gotten out. And now just seeing him there by the side of the road dying on a cross... Any, any, any final thought that this was your Messiah was gone. Because no Jew at the time was prepared to accept that their Messiah would die on a cross. Just Jesus, if he's on a cross, he's not the Messiah. End of story. That just cannot be. And so anyone who may have thought he was, even those who acclaimed him as Messiah on Palm Sunday, the week before, that's all gone. If he's on a cross, he's not the Messiah. And so they revile him. They hurl abuse at him. They wag their heads, common Jewish expression for disdain. They mock him. I mean, to think that Jesus claimed he could destroy the temple and rebuild it by himself in three days. I mean, what a joke. Look at him now. If he's really the king of the Jews, why does he just save himself? Come down from the cross. If he's got that much power, this should be child's play. Just come on down and prove it. The religious leaders were thinking and saying the same things. Verse 31 says, In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Here are the greatest culprits to the 
killing of Jesus, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel. They had long ago rejected Jesus and condemned him to death in their hearts. They mocked him often as a false teacher, claiming he even was possessed by the devil. All they could do was mock him for fear of the people. But now they, they finally got him. We've been studying for many months. They just they finally got him now that the great enemy of them is he's on that cross. He's done. They finally got him. And so now their mocking has a celebratory tone to it. They say he saved others. He cannot even save himself. I mean, what kind of a supposed savior is this? If he can't even deliver himself from a tree. They say, let this Christ, the king of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe they, they jest to themselves. All throughout the ministry of Jesus, they saw sign after sign that he performed. Healing the leper, curing the blind, raising the dead. They saw it. His power was literally undeniable. They couldn't deny it. All they could do was ascribe his power to the devil. They couldn't deny it, though. But now they ask for one more sign. Just one more. Just just come down from the cross and then we'll finally believe, they say. But you know that was a sham. There's no way they're going to believe. Even if Jesus did come down from the cross, they still wouldn't believe. Their hearts are so hardened in sin and hatred at this point. Like Jesus said of them, even if someone rises from the dead, they will not believe. Luke 16, 31. Indeed, when Christ rose from the dead, they did not believe, but covered it up and furthermore even if jesus did come down from the cross they could not believe or or other words otherwise it wouldn't do them any good and jesus if he wanted he could have come down from the cross he could have shown them his power convinced them all but then he couldn't be their savior so even if they did believe it would do them no good they would still be dead in their sins without a savior it's only by refusing to save himself could jesus actually save others realize that? So they were half right when they said he saved others, he cannot save himself. Better would it be to say, in order to save others, he cannot save himself. He could, but he can't in order to save others. But being blind, they couldn't see the obvious, and so they mocked and rejected their only means of salvation. So extreme was the level of rejection and mockery that Jesus received on the cross that even the two guys who were in the process of dying next to him took turns insulting him. Remember this? Just look at the ending of verse 32. Mark just says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Just think about that. How, How remarkable a level of rejection that is. Even the other guys on death row sitting in the electric chair next to you, they're mocking you. I mean, these men, they're about to die, but yet they're so wicked that they're spending some of their final breaths, which, and it's hard to breathe on a cross, they're spending some of their last breaths mocking the guy next to them. Well, there's a lot more to be said here. This is only Mark's account of the first three hours of the cross. Still have the final three hours to come and more. But this suffices for a surface pass through the text, just, just on the surface. And on the surface, what do you see? Well, what's remarkable so far is what you don't see. Namely, Jesus doing anything. He doesn't do anything. He appears weak and powerless. Rather, everyone else is acting upon him. They're stealing his clothes. They're nailing him to a cross. They're mocking and insulting him. And Jesus, he doesn't do anything about it. On the surface, that's it. The picture of his suffering and death is clear. But so far, this doesn't seem very victorious. I mean, he he dies. He's going to die. And before death, he's treated so poorly. So just put yourself in the shoes of someone who doesn't know the end of the story like we do. Can this be right? Is this right? Why doesn't Jesus just come down from the cross? Why doesn't he call down the angels and just win? If he really is the Christ and the Son of God, why would he allow himself to go through such treatment and then die on a cross? Is this right? Is this really the path of the Messiah? Or did Jesus get lost? Is he off course? 
Do you know why that's such a big question for you to answer? It's because Jesus now calls you down that same path. Same path he went. The path of the cross. That same narrow, dark path. And so this is real. This is a real question. It's not just a hypothetical question. You have to be utterly convinced that even though on the surface it appears that Jesus died in defeat, in reality he died in victory. He was on the right path. And so you can take courage to follow him on that same path. I mean, you have to believe that thoroughly. And for that reason, to give you assurance that his death on the cross was not foolishness, I want us to take another look back through these verses and now dip beneath the surface to see what else is going on here. God, he's planted a, a whole other layer of significance in the circumstances, the details of the cross There are signposts everywhere confirming this is the right path. And let me show you some of them. So look back a second time now at verse 23. It says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, as we read. Why is Mark telling us this? Why record this? Why didn't Jesus drink the wine with myrrh? Just because he he wanted his faculties about him on the cross? Yeah, that's true. But this is also a reference to a promise Jesus himself made. The night before, while instituting the Lord's Supper, he took the cup, which was the blood of the covenant, the new covenant he was about to make. And Jesus said, holding the cup, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. See, Jesus refusing the wine, it's a sign He's telling you, even though he's suffering immensely, he's still cognizant of what he's doing. He knows this is, this is the plan. He's on track. Jesus knows that before he can drink the celebratory cup with his redeemed bride, the church, he first has to drink down the cup of God's wrath to the dregs. It's just showing you intention. He, he knows what he's doing. Now, so look at verse 24. Here's the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus. All the anticipation has been building up to this point. And when it comes, what does Mark say about it? And they crucified him. That's it. The details of the cross, that's it. About the actual crucifixion, like I said. And it makes you wonder, like, no, what, what's up with that? Why, if this is the whole point, why don't you tell us more about that? But Mark tells us nothing more about that. Instead, he spends more time telling us about the soldiers taking his clothes. And on the surface, you think, that's just so random. And like, what's the point of that? Why wouldn't you tell us more about the cross? But Mark is telling us what we need to know. Verse 24, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It sounds odd unless you're a student of the Bible. And then, as I'm sure many of you recognize, you think, wait, haven't I heard that before somewhere? And you realize that's just not a random detail. That is not a fulfilled prophecy. Indeed, it is. This is why all four gospel writers include this specific fact. It's not random. John, in his gospel, makes this connection explicit when he says, the soldiers cast lots for his clothes in order that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And he quotes then, what? Psalm 22. So there, see what I'm saying? We have a a whole nother layer of meaning now going on behind this seemingly random act. I think it's worth another look. So keep a a thumb and mark and open it Psalm 52, or 22 rather. Turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. It's such a special psalm. Written by King David a thousand years before Jesus. We don't know the historical context of the psalm. David describes some intense personal affliction. It reads more like an execution story. Maybe he wrote it when fleeing from Saul. But God, in his wisdom and oversight, he infused this psalm with a messianic meaning. These words were true of David in a sense, yes. 
But God purposed them to be true of the greater David, the son of David, David's son and David's Lord, the Messiah. And so this psalm, more than any other psalm, details the suffering of the servant. How do we know this? Well, for one, the New Testament writers tell us. They quote this psalm in reference to Jesus all the time. They directly say, Jesus fulfilled these verses of the suffering servant. They interpret this as a messianic psalm. And even if it was never quoted in the New Testament, just just read Psalm 22. And it reads like a play-by-play of the crucifixion. It's that spot on. Let's just take a look at a few verses. We don't have all the time in the world, but verse 1. How does it start? It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds familiar, right? I mean, that, that's going to add a huge layer of significance to Christ's near final words on the cross, which we'll get to next week. Realize Jesus himself was quoting. He wasn't just saying that for the fun of it. He was quoting himself, this psalm, in reference to himself while he was dying on the cross and giving him his last breath. That we'll save for next time. But look at also verse 6. Let's just jump to a few of these. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Was this not true of Jesus? He was despised and forsaken of men. He bore all their reproaches on himself as he died. Verse 7, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head. This describes exactly what the passerbys and the religious leaders were doing to Jesus. In fact, Mark In his gospel, he uses the exact same word for wagging the head in the Greek Old Testament version of this verse. And Luke uses the exact same word for sneering in his version. I mean, that's not an accident. These guys were drawing connections between the cross and Psalm 22. And these revilers, what were they saying? Verse 8, they were saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. This is what the revilers were saying. Here's what's so crazy about that verse, verse 8. This verse is found referenced in Matthew's gospel, yet it comes out of the mouth of the chief priests. So just get this. The, The priests and the scribes, as they mock and revile Jesus, they themselves quote Psalm 22, verse 8, and they apply it to Jesus. They meant it mockingly because they reject him as the Christ, but they know this is a messianic psalm. It just shows even Christ's enemies connect him to Psalm 22. Look at verse 12. He says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. Like bulls, like dogs, like lions. All the Gospels mention how Jesus was surrounded by his enemies, not his friends. When he died. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death. These verses describe more of the crucifixion than Mark's gospel. His bones are not broken. But they're out of joint. Because his arms are stretched out on the cross. His heart is pushed to the limit. His strength is depleted. He's dying of thirst. This is a picture of someone on the verge of death, right? Indeed, he would be laid down in the dust of death. Verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now that's something right there, right? Does that just say what I thought it just said? You know, Jews... In the 3rd century A.D., so after the fact, they changed the Hebrew of that verse because it sounded too much like crucifixion. So they changed it to a word for lion. But when you look at the, because it's kind of close in the Hebrew, but when you look at the Hebrew manuscripts before the time of Christ, it says what it says. They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when David was writing this. But God was giving these words in his providence a double sense, a dual sense. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. Another reference to being stretched out. 
You could, they could count all of his ribs as he was stretched out on the cross as they were staring at him. Finally, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And there you have it. I mean, David, David used this verse, this whole, this whole chapter, David wrote this figuratively to refer to himself. Yeah, here's, here's the thing. God meant this literally to refer to Jesus. It's usually backwards. Usually in the Old Testament, God gives something literal, and then later it figuratively points to Christ in the future. Here's something figurative, and God made it literally point to Jesus in the future. These verses were all fulfilled literally by Jesus on the cross. God meant them for a greater David. These verses describe to the T the circumstances of the cross. There's more, and we'll see more in the weeks to come. For now, go back to Mark 15. You can go back. I want to show you just just one more signpost. Like I said, in this text, there's more going on. And when you see it, you start to see the hand of God over this event, not just evil men. Psalm 22, it actually covers a lot of what we've just read of what happened to Jesus. But there's another one. Look at verse 27 back in Mark 15. It says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right hand, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. Why tell us that Jesus was crucified in between two criminals? A random detail? No. It's another sign. Most likely verse 28 was added later. That's why it's in brackets. But it captures Mark's intent. He and the other gospel writers, they tell us the position of Jesus in between two evildoers on purpose. Because this is another God-ordained sign testifying this is who Jesus is and this is what he's doing on the cross. And this time this sign comes from another famous passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. You probably heard of it, I'm sure. Let's turn there now. One more. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. We can't help but look at some of these in Isaiah 53. This is another critical pro- uh, prophecy of God's messianic servant. Again, God's servant is depicted as suffering. So we call him the suffering servant. Now I know most of you know these connections. But remember, some people, they, they come to the church as newcomers. They've never heard this before. This is once new to you and it could be new to them. So don't take... A chapter like this, for granted, though you might hear it often, it's still significant. This chapter is huge, every verse here, but again, for the sake of time, let me just show you a few connections. Look at verse 3. It says, Of the servant, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And one like from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. This verse profoundly captures the total, absolute rejection that Jesus faced on the cross. The Jews, the Gentiles, his disciples, even God. Totally rejected on the cross. Verse 4, key verses. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Spiritually and physically, these verses were literally true of Jesus. He was pierced through and scourged, and it was God's doing. This verse says this was God's doing. He's smitten of God. God did this to his servant. Why? And because this servant would bear our sins and pay the penalty for them. Like verse 6 says, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jesus came as the Lamb of God and he became our sin bearer. And he took our sins far away. He paid the ultimate price for us, suffering the wrath of God in our place that we might be redeemed. That's the heart of the gospel. And it's in the Old Testament. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, like, uh, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep 
that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. We've already pointed that one a couple of times in the past few weeks. Jesus displayed this profound silence in the face of his tormentors and accusers and executors. He offered no protest as they took his life because they really weren't taking it. He was offering it up. We could spend time in every verse here in Isaiah 53. It's so rich, but just one more for the sake of time. The beginning of verse 9, it says, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. And from this chapter, it's actually clear that God's servant would die. He, he was going to die. And even though he's clearly innocent, he would die with the wicked around him. Yet somehow he would be with a rich man in his death. Indeed, when Joseph of Arimathea came, he took the body of Christ and he was very wealthy and he placed it in his own luxury tomb. Again, we could go on. There's, there's so much more. And it's not just Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. All throughout the Old Testament, God was pointing forward to the Christ. And so the point is now, when you read Mark 15 and you have this Old Testament understanding you realize you're not just reading a story or history or just random facts. You're reading about a plan coming to fruition. There's purpose here. There's meaning created by God himself and willingly carried out by Jesus. And here's what it's even more profound to me. At the cross, you have all these different players, the soldiers, the thieves or the bandits, the Jews, the religious leaders, the people passing by. And none of them are being coerced. No one told the soldiers, hey, it's time for you guys to divide up the clothes because you've got to fulfill that prophecy. No one made them do that. God did not make them do that. Of their own volition, they did what they wanted to do. Yet they all still totally played into the hand and plan of God. That's God's concurrence. At the cross, we find then the ultimate instance of Genesis 50:20, God taking what men mean for evil and using it for good. That's what God does. I mean, do you see this? Do you believe this? This is it's really such a big conclusion to arrive at and a huge distinction because look, when the world looks at Mark 15 for example at the cross, when they think of the death of Jesus, they don't see victory. They see defeat. Just a guy and he, he's dead now. They don't see a plan. They don't see any purpose. There's no mission. It's just, just a guy that died. And people make much out of it. But, but we do make much of it. We do see plan and purpose, the purpose of God, whereby through the death of Jesus, God was accomplishing an atonement. This is not a defeat, but a victory over sin. But how, how can we say that? Where do we, where do we see that? Well, the, the signs are everywhere. They're all over the place. Left by God. His fingerprints are all over the events, the circumstances of the cross. That's how we can say, this is of God. This is from God. It's, it's predicted long ago, in fact. And that's how Peter can say this. This is such a, a, a huge verse. Listen to Peter. Not long after this, Acts 2.23, he's, he's preaching to the same people who killed Jesus not long ago. And he says of Jesus, Acts 2.23, he says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You guys did it. You nailed him. You condemned him. And you're guilty. But it was the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. These wicked men, like I said, they, they acted of their own volition. So they're still responsible. They sure are. But behind everything was God's predetermined plan. Similarly, the apostles later prayed in Acts 4. Listen to their prayer, Acts 4.27. They say to God, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, to do what? To do whatever your hand, and your purpose predestined to occur. It's pretty clear. I mean, God, you get all these people were gathered, the, the Jews, the Romans, and they, they gathered 
to kill Jesus. And what were they doing? They were doing precisely what your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. A dead Messiah on a cross. It's not an accident. It's on purpose. And far from foolishness, this was God's plan from the beginning of time. Some don't believe. They don't want to believe. Their eyes are veiled to the cross and they can't see the obvious signs. But if your eyes have been opened, you see the plan. And you should thank God for his plan. You should praise God for the plan that he made and that Jesus fulfilled to redeem you from your sins. That if you look upon Christ and believe and turn from your sins and and confess him as the Messiah, that you can be one of the lost sheep brought back into the fold of God. This truth, it, it demands your life and your all. Because look, look what Jesus gave. He gave himself for you in your place. He, and he stayed there. He loved you so much, he didn't take himself down from the cross. But he stayed, he endured the shame and the pain for you. I mean, if you, if you believe that, it demands your whole life offered up as an offering of praise to God. Additionally, by studying the scriptures this morning and beholding God's plan of the cross. This is how we grow in our conviction and confidence in Jesus to follow him. Because realize, Jesus calls you down that same path for for your lives, the path of the cross. His ways become our ways, and that includes, for us, a cross before a crown. To follow Jesus means, in this life, a measure of mockery, ridicule, rejection, suffering, persecution, and scorn if you're going to really follow him. That's what he received. That, that was his path. That was part of the plan. It was God's will. So it is for us. That, that's a hard call. And it makes us question. We wonder, is that, is that right? Is that really the way for us now? Is that, is that the way? I mean, the way of Jesus it seems scary and it's a narrow way and it's dark and sometimes it dips down to a valley of suffering. And yeah, you tell me there's a crown over there. I can't see it, but all I can see is the dark part right now. It's costly. This path, this path might even cost you your life. It does cost you your life. And so we hold back because we're scared. We wonder, is this, is this really God's will? And meanwhile, we look over at all the people in the world and they're on this, they're on this nice easy, comfortable stroll on a, on a broad path. Life is good. I mean, they have no worries in that, in that regard. And they're just free. And so again, we question, like, are we on the right path? Is this right? Are we the crazy ones for giving up so much to follow Jesus, a dead Messiah? And it's okay to have such questions. Yeah, question. But find assurance and comfort and strength from God's plan of the cross. It was a plan from the beginning. This is God's will for the Christ. And like Jesus himself said, it's God's will for those who follow. And find assurance that though died, though he died, he rose. And there is the, cro- the crown after the cross. Jesus is still the way the only way to God, because of the plan of the cross. And you, you need this confidence in him if you are to hope to live rightly before him. Because after all, you, you can't run a race if you're not sure of the path. But take comfort in Christ because he treaded through the narrow valley of death first and he emerged on the other side in resurrection power. And so as he now calls us down the road of discipleship, denying yourself, picking up your cross, as you lay down your life to follow him, you can rest assured that by his same power, though we may lose our lives to follow him, we will gain back eternal life on the other side with him forever. Jesus himself told people to believe because of the signs he performed. Likewise, see the signs written in God's word and believe. You know, when they killed Jesus, they hung a literal sign over his head broadcasting to all the world who this was. 
This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And here he is dying on the cross. I mean, only the power of God. In addition to all the other signs, God gave a literal sign, like a piece of wood sign, telling people in their language. This is like God telling people, this is, this is, your, this is your Christ. This is the Messiah. This is my plan. This is my son given over for you. His own people couldn't see the obvious signs everywhere, even though their own Messiah hung there with a literal sign over his head. But ask God to open the eyes of your heart and behold a greater Christ and believe. He's still the way and the truth and the life. So find strength and encouragement to follow him in God's plan of the cross, which is now his plan for you. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, thank you for truth in your word this morning. We, we read scripture and it's so layered. It's simple enough for a child to understand, yet so deep that even the greatest of us can never plumb its depths. And this, this morning we beheld that the wisdom of your word and the wisdom of the cross. The cross is foolishness to the world. They see just a, a, another dead guy who suffered. But we see that the wisdom and the power of God in ordaining a plan of salvation to give the Lamb for us, for our lives in exchange for us, that we would be forgiven, that we'd be bought back with the price of his blood once for all. Thank you, Lord, for this plan. And this plan demands us, our lives, because we're called to a very similar plan, to deny ourselves, to give up our lives, to follow the Christ And it may mean similar outcome for us, but give us the strength to know that we're in your will. The crown awaits those who are faithful and following him. So give us the strength and encouragement we need today. As the world grows dark, we need more confidence in Christ to follow him, no matter the cost. So keep us on the right path. It's clear. The path is marked. The signs are everywhere. May we simply follow the guide of Christ and be with you. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.